by Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. This is the Say the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back to the Say the Damn Score podcast. You're listening here either on iTunes, Google Play, or one of the many other places where you can subscribe to the podcast. We appreciate everyone for stopping in, and we have a good show lined up for you today. We are joined by the radio voice of the Oakland A's, Ken Korak. And Ken, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's great to be with you. Nice to be on your show. During the off-season, you hole up in Las Vegas. What do you do in Las Vegas during the off-season? I feel like there's a <laughs> got to start off Good right question, there. Logan. Well, um, and, and we're right in the middle of it right now, so uh, it's, it's a nice feeling to be irresponsible. Uh, my wife and I moved here many, many years ago, and we both wound up with good jobs, and that's why we um, stayed and have chosen to stay in the off-season, although we spend – uh, two or three weeks, maybe a month. Maybe we'll spend a month this year up in the Bay Area. But um, I was doing UNLV football and basketball for many years, and my wife was working for the AAA club out here. At that time, they were called the Las Vegas Stars, now the Las Vegas 51. So uh, we spent. We got married in the Bay Area. Our daughter was born there. We moved to Vegas, and then I got hired by the A's. But that's just the. That's kind of the cycle of things I think in broadcasting. So if I told you to go put uh, 50 down on red, how long would it take you from where you are right now to get to the nearest casino? It would take about 10 minutes from where I am right now, but you know maybe it's a good thing that I, I just don't go down there and play. I mean, it's nothing. It, you know, it's maybe ironic that we're living here in Vegas and I never go down to the Strip to play. Now, there are certain things that we enjoy down there, especially the entertainment and some of the restaurants, but as far as the... You know, honestly, the gambling aspect of it, that's not something we've ever really indulged in. Are you allowed as a broadcaster of a team to do certain <laughs> parts of gambling, you know, going down to the sports book at the MGM and putting something on, obviously not on a baseball game, but on any kind of sport? I don't know, but I don't want to find out. So I've never done it. I don't um, – listen, it's, it's a big part of – of life out here, a big part of the culture. A lot of my friends enjoy going down and putting some money down on a football game on a Sunday. Um, I don't do that. I just think it's, I think it may be a good idea for me not to get involved in that. All right. Well, we started off off of track. Usually it takes us at least 10 or 15 minutes to get to this point, but we will get back on our track talking about broadcasting and Ken, one of the things I ask everyone who comes on this show early in the show was, what was your very first break getting into the business, whether that was right out of college or getting experience in high school that led to uh, experience in college? What was that very first break to get you your first professional job? Well, Logan, I took a little bit of a circuitous route, I would say, to get there. But to answer your question, I always, in the back of my mind, um, had the thought that I wanted to become a broadcaster someday and to pursue it as a career. It's just that I didn't quite have the focus. I wasn't kind of set into that direction when I finished with college, and so I did two or three different things as far as jobs were concerned after I graduated from college, and that was at UC Santa Barbara. But I 
so new, I think that um, it's pretty hard to get a job and just start out in a major market. Very few people can do that. And so I was lucky enough to land a job in a very small town um, just across the Golden Gate Bridge and up Highway 101 about an hour north of uh, San Francisco in Petaluma, California, uh, working for a station that was 1,000 watts during the daytime, and they powered down to 250 at night. KTOB radio. I don't even think they're in existence anymore. But I were, I, my first job, I literally made $3.35 an hour, and I played records on Saturday mornings from 6 until 10. But it morphed into what was a great education. I think stations like that now around the country are almost dinosaurs in that it was really a well-rounded broadcasting indoctrination. And I did everything. I wound up doing high school football, basketball, and baseball, um, hosted, co-hosted the new news, did a production shift, recorded commercials in the afternoon, had a DJ and a talk show shift in the morning. And so without any real formal education from a high school or college standpoint, uh, I don't believe there was a broadcasting major during my time in college. Uh, that was just a fantastic opportunity. And it wasn't, I guess, long after that, maybe three years after that, that I got hired for my first job in a big market in, in San Francisco, and that was in 1985. What were the other jobs that you were considering going into instead of broadcasting, since you said there were other jobs that you either, I wasn't sure if you said you took them or you thought about them, but what were your other possible paths in life that you maybe well, were close or not so close to taking? I didn't really have any other paths. Um, I think I was just biding my time until I really felt that, because when you get into something for a career, and especially our business, uh, because broadcasting can be really a transient business, it can be rough and very competitive, not unlike other professions. I felt like I really wanted to have that discipline and focus when I made that decision to go for a career in broadcasting that um, I would almost have tunnel vision in a way, and I just wasn't ready for that when I finished college. But there was nothing else that really enticed me as far as a career. Uh, my first job out of college, I worked in a clothing store. Um, and then I worked at, as a counselor at a treatment facility for adolescent kids um, at a group home. We had 24 kids in our care, and this was in Santa Barbara in, in four different homes. Um, after that, I worked at a golf course. I was the first assistant at a municipal golf course up in Santa Rosa, California. <clears throat> so those were the things that I did um, as I was kind of getting myself geared up to really pursue broadcasting. And even while I was while I had the gig as a working in the golf business, um, I was working on trying to put my tapes together, like we've all done, like I know you've done, I'm sure, in your career. Um, I went down to the Oakland Coliseum. I'd record an A's game in the stands. I would go to San Francisco, record a 49ers game at Candlestick Park, try to find a place to record a basketball game or two, and just work on my craft to a point where I had some confidence when I went out and applied for my first job. So give us the Cliff Notes version of your path to the voice of the Oakland A's, where you went from that job in California to where you are now. For broadcasters, that's hard to do, you know, the Cliff Notes version. We're pretty long-winded. Well, we'll, we'll get back uh, in. I... I'll follow up on certain stops along the way. <laughs> no, I, I I was lucky enough to spend um, five full years working in AAA baseball. I worked one year in single A in 1984 in the California League in a town called Rohnert Park, which is a little bit north of Petaluma, north of San Francisco. 
And then I got hired by the Phoenix team in the Coast League in 86. I did two years for them, 86 and 87. I did uh, three years, Logan, in, in AAA ball in Las Vegas for the Las Vegas Stars, 89, 90, and 91. Um, concurrent to all that, I was doing college basketball and football. I went up doing seven years for San Jose State and 12 years for UNLV. And um, in 1992, the White Sox were looking for a third man in their broadcast booth. And that was my first real big break in the big leagues. I got hired by the White Sox to work. Kind of an unusual arrangement. It was a weekend gig. I commuted to wherever the White Sox were playing, beginning in 92 for four years, 92, 3, 4, and 5. And then I got hired by the A's in November of, 95, my first year with the A's full-time, was in 96. So one of those first jobs that you mentioned, or maybe you didn't mention, I don't remember, I just read it up on your Wikipedia, was for the Redwood Pioneers in the California League calling Minor League Baseball. Give us some stories from the bus or the locker room or the dugout Covering a minor league baseball team at that level where everybody's kind of young and crazy and on the road with no money and not a care in the world? Well, it's an interesting question that you ask because that was a great club. My memories of that team are that even after all these years and all the great teams the A's have had and the playoff experiences that I've been fortunate enough to be involved in, um, my first full-time job working in baseball, I made $750 a month in 1984. And that club, and it's really unusual, as you know, Logan, because if you, I don't know what the, what the ratio is, but if 4 or 5% of the players who sign a contract and then wind up playing in single-A ball in an organization, in this case it was the Angels single-A club, if maybe 6% of the players on that roster get to the big leagues, that's above average. And that team back in 84 sent several players to the big leagues. They were 53-17 and 17 in the second half and uh, wound up playing the Modesto A's in the playoffs, and it came down to the final game, and Jose Canseco, back then a young, raw-boned kid playing in single-A ball in Modesto, won the playoff series for Modesto against our club by hitting a home run that I think is somewhere up in orbit even today after all these years, but... Um, and even the friendships that um, developed during that year, uh, some of the guys, Mark McLemore is still a really good friend, works on the Rangers broadcast pre- and post-game on TV after a, a long and really good major league career. Guys like Devon White, who was as good a center fielder as I've ever seen. Jack Howell played third base, still working in baseball. Uh, several players got to the big leagues, and great memories from those days. Tom Koshman was our manager, and uh, that was quite a club. How did you get by on that wage and make make ends meet? Did you have other jobs at the time, or did you just live in a van down by the river? What was your way of getting things done? Well, I did have a van, and there was a bed in the back, but I don't think I had to use it. Um, I was also working full-time at a radio station back then, and I'd also worked um, full-time for the golf course uh, for quite a few years up until then. And one of the things that I've been lucky enough to do is that, and I tell this to young announcers, in that I didn't place my eggs in one basket. Uh, in other words, it wasn't like I had my, you know, my heart set on broadcasting baseball, and that was my only focus. So I tried to do all three sports. 
And at that time, I was doing Division II football and basketball for Sonoma State University, whose campus was really close to the ballpark where I broadcast those single-A games. And I think there are times when you have to get creative in your career, especially early. I actually owned the rights to the Sonoma State games, and I went out and sold the advertising and formed kind of a a small production company, if you could call it that, um, back in those days. How did you learn how to do sales? That's one of the things that, on my particular career path, I got into it because I got the opportunity to do sales, and since then, both a blessing and a curse, I've not been able to get out of it. There's certainly a lot of advantages to it, but how did you learn how to do that? Because it's certainly a very different and difficult skill compared to just doing play-by-play or talking on the air. I don't know that I'm an expert in that at all. I don't know the answer to that. I, I do think that um, so much in life uh, revolves around personal relationships. And I think you try to develop relationships in sales with potential clients, and especially in a situation like that. I was broadcasting Division Two football and basketball on a very small station, and I, can't, I couldn't produce for them any numbers or ratings and say that 20,000 people are going to be listening to these broadcasts, so it's almost an emotional sale. I'm sure you've gone through that yourself. You know, kind of support the university. This is a really important thing, nice thing to get involved in in the community. Um, maybe you bring them out to the ball games and, and have them enjoy that experience, um, getting involved with some of the people um, in the athletic department. So um, I think it's much more of, I guess you could say, an emotional sell than it would be in a real big market where you can just show somebody ratings and say, and, you know, they're advertising agencies and things like that. So getting into Division One sportscasting, your first break was with San Jose State, if I heard you correctly. What was the connection yeah. or opportunity that you were able to take advantage of to get that position? Well, at that time, um, KCBS Radio, which is one of the great stations in the country, a real beacon, 50,000-watt clear channel CBS station, of course, uh, they were broadcasting San Jose State football. And at that time, it was kind of in, at the point where Silicon Valley was really becoming a, a burgeoning place for industry in the Bay Area, and KCBS was looking to make inroads down there. And that's one reason they carried San Jose State football. Ted Robinson, who's had an incredibly great career, and I'm sure you know Ted, uh, was broadcasting San Jose State's games on KCBS. Well, they actually obtained the rights to Stanford. So the same station was carrying KCBS and Stanford. Ted left the San Jose State broadcast to become the voice of Stanford, and that opened up the opportunity for, uh, for me to get the job doing the Spartans. Actually, had a situation that first year in 85 where San Jose and Stanford played and now you have two broadcast crews. You have two separate um, formats, I guess, and, and sales commercials for each team, each school. And the station carried the Stanford broadcast first, and they followed that by carrying our play-by-play. And so you had seven consecutive hours of the same game on the same station. That's a long time. And I have time. to say the outcome was the same. <laughs> that is... Unique. So you, yes. did they just play back-to-back? Back-to-back, yeah. Huh. Back, because they felt an obligation to the sponsors, because there were separate sponsors for the Stanford broadcast. There were separate sponsors for the San Jose State broadcast. They wanted 
to give the sponsors the opportunity to get their commercials on the air. They actually obviously paid for the time. And so back-to-back, they ran the same game, different broadcast teams. Does that change the way you call a game at all, knowing that it's either being played live or I'm going to guess if you're at this smaller school, maybe yours was the one that was tape delayed. Does that change your call? Yeah, yeah we did wind up in second place as far as the lineup there. Uh, no, not not at all, I don't think. I think you can't assume that people are listening, that the, the people are listening know the outcome. And especially back then, I mean, after all, this is 31 years ago, way before the proliferation of social media. So I think even if in, you know, we've all done games on tape delay, uh, I think you have to broadcast the game just as if it was live because you can't assume that people who are listening know the outcome. Your next stop on your path you mentioned was UNLV, and I'm sure as a a young adult at that point, there were some good times had. There was also the time, was it when UNLV was really good and had some of those best college teams in the history of the game, or was that just after? Well, it was my misfortune, I guess. I mean, I really enjoyed doing the game, but I literally uh, came in the year that Jerry Tarkanian left. So UNLV had won the national championship in 1990. Uh, They had lost that famous game to Duke in the Final Four in 91. They were on probation, had a phenomenal team, but couldn't go to the postseason the next year in the 91-92 season. And I came in uh, with kind of a changing of the guard in the athletic department. Roly Massimino became the head basketball coach for the 92-93 season. And that was my first year doing their games. Now, the team was very good. My recollection is at one point that they were ranked eighth or ninth in the country. Um, still had some players left over from the Tarkanian era. But that season, that team, it, it kind of all kind of fell apart down the stretch, and had, they had to settle for a berth in the NIT. We had some good teams. I mean, there's no doubt. And there were very good players that came through UNLV during the times I did the games. Uh, and several went on to play in the NBA, but certainly nothing like the, the dynasty that they almost developed in the Tarkanian days. So how did you end up with that opportunity again? What I've found talking to a lot of different people uh, of varying levels of success is almost nobody's path is the same, and many of them are almost completely unreplicable. What was your path to getting to major D1 basketball? Well, I think a lot of it is being in the right place at the right time. And I don't know, There's, I I, I could search for a deeper answer to that, but I was already in Vegas because I was doing AAA games that summer. And they were looking to make some changes in the broadcast um, with kind of the end of the Tarkanian era. As I said, things were changing in the, in the athletic department. And things were also changing as far as the structure of the broadcast on radio and TV. And they were looking to go in a different direction. I happened to be broadcasting the games in the market during the summertime, um, doing baseball in AAA. Um, here in Las Vegas, and so that's that's the reason that that opportunity developed for me to do the Rebel game. And you mentioned you never put your eggs in one basket, and I think that's relevant here because most people, when they get to the D1 level doing football and college basketball, you know, that's kind of what they start to zero in on, and that's what they do for the rest of your career. You obviously ended up going beyond that was there ever a thought to maybe putting your eggs in one basket once you got to that point? No, there wasn't. 
Uh, it's a great question, Logan, but I really was, uh, it was really important for me. And it wasn't even so much the striving to, you know, to reach the major leagues, but it really was the effort to try to get as good as I could and fulfill whatever potential I had in all three sports. Um, I never placed one ahead of the other in terms of my focus or the amount of time that I would devote to one as opposed to the other. And so even when I was doing the UNLV games, I was still doing AAA games and then eventually wound up with that part-time gig I mentioned with the White Sox. So I had no idea where the break would come or even if the break would come. And so for quite some time, and even, you know, I had to drop doing football when I got hired full-time to do the A's because there was just too much of an overlap during the season, but I kept doing basketball for UNLV well into the time that um, I had been hired and was working a full schedule with the A's. So now we talked about all of your career up to the point before you got hired by the A's. How did you end up getting hired by the A's? Well, it was, again, one of those things where, and there's a little bit of an irony there, too, because the A's, at the end of the 95 season, um, not, I guess, unlike, I guess, not dissimilar to what happened with UNLV. There were some changes at the very top. The club had been sold. The Haas family uh, had sold the team to a group led by uh, Mr. Hoffman and Mr. Schott. And at that time, it was determined that the broadcast team, which was the greatest broadcast team in the history of Bay Area sports, Bill King and Lon Simmons, um, Lon was not going to come back for the next season, for the 96 season. That opened up an opportunity for someone. Lon was one of my heroes. Um, spent I, I can't tell you how many hours I listened to Lon, both during his time with the Giants and with the A's. And for great, and he passed away um, last year, but uh, for and just received the ultimate honor that a broadcaster can receive going into the Hall of Fame as a Ford C. Frick Award recipient. But there was an opening there. And I applied for the job, and I guess like anybody else in applying for a job, you, you put your best foot forward, um, set my tape in and the resume. And I did have some connections because I'd worked in the market, having done games at San Jose State and dabbling in a little bit of TV work up in the Bay Area. And um, I was lucky enough to get the job. I don't know that there was any, you know, there's no magic elixir as far as how these things develop. And in talking to a lot of young announcers, I don't think there's any formula as to why certain people get certain jobs. Um, that just, it just turned out to be the right fit for me when I applied for that job for the, uh, with the A's. Do you remember the interview process of, that, uh, of getting that job? Do you remember any of the particular questions or maybe how, remember things that you did that you thought you did well that led to you, you getting that job? Well, that's a great question. It's a long time ago. I really haven't thought about it a whole lot since, but one of the things that has really helped and helped in my career is that Ken Priest, who is still the A's vice president of broadcasting, was in on the interview process, was working for the team back then, along with a gentleman named Alan Ledford, who's had a very long and, and great career in baseball and currently working in AAA ball. Um, I think one of the things was that Bill King my late great partner, and we spent 10 phenomenal years together, uh, the most iconic announcer ever to work in the Bay Area, the most revered, uh, was a very quirky guy. And I had grown up listening to Bill. I had spent numerous days and nights and hours listening to Bill. And so I think that one of the things that they were focused on was the fact that maybe not anyone could just go in there and work with Bill. 
And I think the fact that they had the sense that I had a feel for what, even though I didn't really know Bill, I had met him once or twice when I was working for the A's, but to say that I knew him or we were friendly would not be accurate. But I think they had the sense that maybe I could fit in with Bill and that, you know, Bill was a guy that was, um, as I said, pretty quirky. And I don't think that necessarily anyone could have walked in there um, and work with Bill. And it worked out great for me because Bill was just so phenomenal to me during those 10 years. You know, you talk about Bill King with with reverence here and having him as a mentor. What did he teach you and what did he mean to your development as a broadcaster? Well, I think, Logan, that a lot of that would actually go back now, I learned a lot from him, and we had a wonderful relationship both on the air and off during that time we worked together. But I think a lot of the lessons I learned when I didn't know him and I was listening to him as a kid. And I could say that about people like Vin Scully and Dick Enberg and Chick Hearn and Bill, who are growing up in California, as I did in the 60s. Uh, the influences were plentiful. Um, it was a wonderful time to be someone who had this fantasy about becoming a broadcaster someday. I think the things that rubbed off on me from what Bill did was his passion. Number one, Bill didn't answer anybody else's voice except that of his own. Um, he was very much his own man. Uh, and I think that he brought that passion and emotion to every broadcast. It was, a, it was a visceral connection that Bill had with his audience because there was an authenticity when you listen to Bill. Um, and so I think that the, that this, the, the, the way he was able to immerse himself, not only in every broadcast, but in life, I think was just a great lesson for me. And then he was incredibly dedicated. You know, as a kid, you don't know how much time the announcers are spending preparing. But as I grew, got older and got to know some of these people, it became very, it became very apparent to me that one of the reasons I was attracted to these giants I talked about uh, was because they were incredibly diligent. And in working with Bill at a time when, for most of the time we worked together, Bill was up in his 70s. And he had every right or license to mail it in and not work as hard as he did, but he never took anything for granted. Um, he was just incredibly diligent in terms, of, in terms of his work ethic. So unless you're Vin Scully and you do things solo and you're the best broadcaster to ever turn on a microphone, you have to work with... Uh, another broadcaster, a broadcast partner. You mentioned that Bill King had a lot of quirks and you were a good fit to work with him. What were some of those quirks and why were you able to, what adjustments were you able to make that made you a good fit to work with him? Well, I think one of the things that made it work was that Bill reached out to me. Um, and as I said, I came into a situation that potentially could have been made much more difficult if Bill hadn't been so gracious. Because, as I said, I replaced Lon Simmons, and Lon and Bill worked together during the great days of the A's, excuse me, during the, the Bash Brothers era. And so they were well-known as this wonderful partnership. And yet the way that Bill reached out to me during that first year and was so gracious toward me and I said this many times, and I think the A's fans might have been thinking, you know, if Bill King thinks this guy is okay, well, then maybe he is okay. And the other thing is, when you're the number two guy, Bill, it was Bill's show. Bill was doing six innings of play-by-play, play, and I was only doing three. And so you kind of know your role 
Um, I wasn't going to try to make the third, fourth, or seventh inning the seventh game of the World Series. I think my job was to try to blend in and do whatever I could possibly do to support Bill. Now, that being said, uh, Bill always treated me like an equal. Excuse me. I mean, I think we had a partnership, and that goes back to Bill um, because he was – there wasn't a lot of ego. I mean, Bill was dedicated to making the broadcast the best it could possibly be. There's not a lot of broadcasters who I think you can say that, that there's not a lot of ego. How do you handle broadcasters that do have a lot of ego? Well, I've been very fortunate. I've been really fortunate in my career, Logan, that I haven't been confronted with too many situations like that. Um, I've had a really stable career, and so I haven't really had that many broadcast partners. And I can honestly say that throughout the entirety of my career, I think that in general the people I've worked with have just been dedicated to making the broadcast the best it can be and not putting themselves ahead of the broadcast. Even Bill, as brilliant and iconic as he was, um, the bro- he was never more important than the broadcast. It, the game was always the most important thing, and I think that is the most important thing to remember. Bill King passed away while you guys were, I mean, not while you were working, but as you guys were a team. How difficult was it to pick up those pieces and keep putting a quality broadcast on without your mentor who had always been there with you? Well, I think that you know, he, he did. He passed away about two weeks after we did our last broadcast, and that was in Seattle last game of the season in 2005 and he passed on the 18th of October of 05. And I think that one of the most difficult things was not only missing him on the air, but missing him as a friend. I mean, we had, we spent so much time together doing a myriad of things off the air. And there were times those first couple of years, especially where I'd be on the bus after a game where I had done something during the day that I would just think, God, there's something I really want to share with Bill or went out with a group of friends to dinner. And uh, Bill was a connoisseur of fine dining. And invariably, the conversation would come around, boy, this would be a great place for Bill tonight. And so I missed him as a friend. I mean, we, were, we became very close. Um, in terms of the broadcast, uh, we were very fortunate in that Vince Cafronio was available. And we hired Vince, and Vince and I have spent all this time together. And so there hasn't been a lot of, um, you know, it, it, there hasn't been a lot of mixing and matching in terms of, the partners I've had since Bill passed away, Vince and I have uh, worked together ever since we lost Bill back in uh, 2000, starting with the 2006 season. Your time covering the A's, there's been a lot of very unique characters who have come through that organization, from Billy Bean to Jose Canseco. Who are some of the most memorable players, coaches, front office people that that you've had to cover? Well, I'll preface by saying I've also been really fortunate, and it's a matter of serendipity. You just, it was nothing that I did. I just happened to wind up in the right place at the right time for some incredible moments, and I think some really historic moments in the annals of the game. One of them was Dallas Braden's perfect game on Mother's Day in 2010, and Dallas was as great a character as we've ever had, and I don't mean that as, as a pejorative. He was just a wonderful guy, very outspoken, came from a tough neighborhood in Stockton. This story, I think, has been pretty well documented. Very glib and outspoken, uh, but extremely accessible as far as the media is concerned. I think there's, for very good reason, he's made his mark um, 
His career came to an end because of injury prematurely, but he's done an outstanding job, I think, for ESPN. So I would start with Dallas and also for the memories that he left all of us in the Bay Area when he threw the perfect game back in 2010. Um, and the other thing is when you have a really good team, I think it's important that your veterans are leaders and that they set a really good example. And we had some great veterans, Jason Giambi to me, in terms of a superstar, was the least affected superstar I've ever known. Uh, another guy who was a character, he was kind of the leader of the pack in that frat house reputation that the A's had when they were really good in the early 2000s. But a guy that just was incredibly gracious around the media and just never changed from the day that he was a rookie until the time he played his last game. So those are two guys that I think come to, uh, to mind right off the bat. Talking about Dallas Braden's perfect game, and you had the opportunity to broadcast it, when did you say that there was a perfect game going on? Because there's a lot of superstitious people in baseball and a lot of different thought processes on jinxing or not jinxing a perfect game. When did you say that it's a perfect? it was a, in play to be a perfect game, and what was your thought process behind it? I would say it a lot earlier now if I had another chance to do it. Um, I've never listened to the tape of it, so I don't know exactly when I said it. I've listened to the top of the ninth inning, of course. Uh, I don't believe that I actually said the words perfect game until the eighth inning. Now, my partner, Vince, I think, said it earlier than that. I don't think there was any doubt among anybody who was listening to the game that there was a perfect game in progress. But I think from the very early stages, I gave the totals a lot. And I would say for the Rays, no runs, no hits, no errors, no base runners. And I have to admit that I probably danced around the actual words perfect game because it just kind of seemed to be working for a while. Um, now, I think you should say it and say it right off the top because you can't assume that anybody who's listening has been with you the entire game and that they know a perfect game is in progress. So I've always felt that, and, you know, people talk about the superstitions and stuff and, We've all been kidded about having that we're the reasons that a no-hitter was broken up or a hitting streak because we've mentioned it, those kinds of superstitions. But our job is to tell people what's going on, and our job is to tell the folks that a perfect game is in progress. How close is the Moneyball movie to how that team actually was <laughs> and how those events happened? It was loosely based on facts. Um, I think in general – they got the story right. Now, in terms of some of the scenes, the way things played out in the movie, there was uh, quite a bit of, of Hollywood license, I guess you could say, was taken by the writers and the producers. The only thing that I really took umbrage with was the characterization of Art Howe. Now, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman had a wonderful career and a highly decorated career as, a, as an actor. I'm not saying he didn't do a good job in the portrayal of Art. That was what they wanted him to do. Art was not at all like the character as he was portrayed in the movie. But beside that, I think Brad Pitt did a really good job with Billy Bean. Um, I think they did a phenomenal job on the baseball scenes. And so even though certain events didn't exactly play out the way they did in the movie, um, it was pretty much based on the way things went during the year. Um, obviously, I think the critics of the movie will say, well, you barely mentioned Mulder, Hudson, and Zito. You had the three best pitchers on on one staff in, in, in the big leagues, arguably that year. Um, they did a tremendous job, I thought, with the baseball scenes. It was a highly emotional thing to be part of, and I was lucky enough to 
have a small part to play in the movie. I'm still getting residuals, actually. My wife will get me. She'll call me during the baseball season, and she'll say, you know, we just got a check for $22 from Sony Pictures. And I'll say, great, we can have dinner tonight. Um, but when we were, we had the privilege of being in Oakland for the premiere, and A's fans were uh, up in the, the balcony part of the, of the theater, just filled the theater, and to relive the moments of the winning streak and to hear the A's fans cheering and going wild as if those games were happening now, uh, that was really a, a thrilling and a once-in-a-lifetime thing to be part of. So for the, the play-by-play part of that movie, did they use your old audio and put it on top of what was going on, or did they have you recreate it with the players on the field during uh, watching them on tape or something? They used the actual audio, and I give them a whole lot of credit. Bennett Miller, the, the uh, producer of the movie, and uh, or the director of the movie, I should say. Um, I give I give all the people who were involved in, in the production a great deal of credit because they had to call through hours and hours and hours of play-by-play, both on radio and television. And they could have had someone come in and just recreate it. I'm not sure if that would have made a big difference, but I actually acted a scene with Miller spent an hour acting a scene with him and to show you my ability as an actor nobody's ever seen it because it's on the proverbial cutting room floor somewhere in hollywood but the thing that struck me about him was that he wanted authenticity um and i think that's a big reason why they use the actual calls and i'm really indebted to them for having done that and that's the only reason that you hear my voice when during the heroics of miguel tejada during the 18th and 19th games of the winning streak and of course, Bill King was on vacation during that time, or you would have heard, heard Bill's voice. And it was just so perfectly fitting that he has extended the winning streak to 20 consecutive games so that Bill could come back off vacation and call the Scott Hatterberg home run, which I think is, is really would go down as one of the most dramatic regular season home runs in baseball history. And I think one of the greatest calls that a play-by-play man has ever made of a denouement of something that was that dramatic. You mentioned earlier in this podcast that when you were covering minor league ball early in your career, there was a whole bunch of major league players uh, that were on that team. One of them was Jose Canseco, who I'm assuming you covered as Well, he played against us. Okay. Canseco was on the Modesto team that played against our club in the playoffs. Did you have any relationship? Did you interview him at any point at all? During that year or or, or after that? In the minors. Uh, no, I don't recall interviewing him. I, I do recall spending some time with him around the batting cage. I, I don't recall whether I interviewed him or not. Um, he did come back and rejoin the A's during the time that I was working with the club full-time. So what I, um, the, I wanted to preface that by saying, you know, a lot of people, when they get uh, successful and famous and start to get money, they change as people, and you're in a unique situation to have known some of those people before and after they became big time. I guess what did you see on how those players changed and how they handled media and how they handled themselves? Well, I think in the case of Jose, and you can say whatever you want about the steroid era and, and his part that he, the, the part they had to play in it, we had Jose up in Oakland for a promotion during the season this past year. He came up and he spent an, hour, an inning or two with us. I think he spent a couple of innings with us on the air toward the end of the season. He was very engaging. 
Um, and he was the same guy that I knew many, many years ago. So I, I don't know that the trappings change. But the money certainly changed. Maybe the size of the car or the house, in his case, I'm sure changed over the years. But I didn't see a, a huge change in his personality. Um, I have to say that I've, I've, you know, you gravitate toward the people that you enjoy spending time with. Um, as I mentioned, Jason Giambi is someone who never changed from the first day that I met him. And I think that, that you, Logan, you gain, I think we all gain a, an appreciation for people in any walk of life that when you meet them, they kind of match up to your expectations. And in the case of, let's say, a Derek Jeter, um, I had never spent really any meaningful time around Jeter during, during the time that the A's played the Yankees. And one reason there's so much media surrounding the Yankees, it's like a circus that I just didn't, didn't feel that I, I could have because he's an accessible guy, but for whatever reason, I never spent a great deal of time around him. But during Jeter's last season, I felt like this is really my last opportunity. And I went down there and before a game and talked to him about the flip in 2001 in game three of the playoff series. I happened to call that play. And he was just so gracious and friendly, and there was no ego at all. And so I think we do tend to gravitate and relate to those players who are gracious, like Jeter was. And um, those, are the, those are the people, I think, in the game and sports, any walk of life. Vince Scully, uh, who I grew up listening to and idolized. All of us, I'm sure you feel the same way, treat him like a god. Well, he's the same guy off the air as he is on the air and that's a really special thing in someone and i think for me it's just one person's opinion i think the most important quality that anybody can have in any walk of life no matter what you do is to be gracious i don't want you to throw names or throw anybody under the bus or anything like that but what were some situations where maybe people weren't gracious to you in situations where you needed them maybe needed a coach's interview wanted to talk to a player for some background and they just said no or were jerks about it. How many times is how often do you run through do you run into that situation at your level and how do you handle it? Well I have to I'll preface by saying that my responsibility as far as doing interviews for the A's revolves around doing the manager show. So and I've often talked about this with writers. I don't have to go down into the clubhouse after a tough loss and ask the tough questions uh, of someone for the record for a newspaper or for a, an electronic publication. Um, so I do the manager show, and I'm really lucky that in the case of Bob Melvin, all the managers the A's have had, they've been incredibly professional, and Melvin is the greatest as far as that is concerned. Now, going back to my career, during the times when I did do the pregame show, and, and um, we, we had a longer show, and I I did an interview on a pretty regular basis with a player. The only really difficult time I had was with Alex Rodriguez. And the, the thing to me about it is that if you ask someone to do something, or do you, do you have a couple of minutes, and they say, you know, I'm really sorry, I'm really busy today, this isn't a great weekend for me, and I'm sorry, but I can't do it. I have no problem with that. They have every right to say that. Um, and that's even a professional response. Now, you'd like them to to feel like they can make the time for it. But if they, they say, hey, listen, you know, I'm sorry, thanks for asking, but I don't have the time. I have no issue with that. In the case of, of Rodriguez, uh, he said, I'll do it later today. Well, I went to ask him if this was a good time to do it. He said, no, can we do it tomorrow? 
well, then it turned out we couldn't do it. This then, it, you know, there's no reason for me to go into any more detail than that. But um, it was a very long weekend just trying. I invested a lot of time in trying to get him, um, and it turned out to be a really long and, and disappointing weekend. What do you do as a broadcaster at this point in your career, and maybe what did you do early in your career to improve and get better? Well, I think we can always get better, that's for sure. Uh, I think the, a lot of what I'm, you know, I think one of the things is that no matter what level I've reached, I think that you have to hold on to the kind of the cornerstone philosophy and that is to me that I'm never going to compromise my homework. And I still enjoy it. I, I would say, Logan, that at the point in which the homework becomes drudgery, it'll be time for me to walk away and do something else. But I still enjoy getting up in the morning and spending an hour, hour and a half, couple hours or so, in the, especially on the road in the hotel, kind of researching things and kind of putting the broadcast together for that night. Uh, the other thing that I've really worked on a lot would be the mental aspect of it. Uh, just kind of, it's almost like the like a player would, where you, you know, I've done a lot of games over a lot of years, and I just want to trust what I'm at. And I think the ability to just lock in and focus and have that relaxed focus that you have on the air, so things really flow. So from that kind of mental, I don't know, it sounds. Um, I don't want to make it sound like this kind of Zen type of pursuit, but maybe it is like that in a, in a certain way, because I want to be able to reach that level of concentration on the air. What is your preparation process? Take us through what you do to prepare for a major league ball game. I would say it would be a little different at night, for a night game than a day game because we play a lot of games at 12.30 at home at the Coliseum in Oakland, and we don't have a great deal of time to get ready for those games. Um, but let's say for an average night game, especially on the road, I'll probably get up and spend about an hour and a half in the hotel room just going through the Internet and researching things, maybe going through the scorebook from the previous day's game, um, trying to set the table for the first couple of innings, I try to research the starting pitchers to see if there's anything interesting. Um, Dick Enberg in his book um, and from conversations with him always said, you know, give the, give the audience a reason to care. And so if I can go beyond the numbers a little bit so that you can grab people in that first inning or two and give them something that might be unique about the starting pitcher or maybe a couple of the players that the A's are playing against, um, Anything that you can kind of tug on the emotional strings, I think, is important. And then we get to the ballpark really early. I think that's one of the things that's really changed about the game is that, let's say, for a, a home game, uh, Melvin's liable to want to do the manager's show at about 3.30 or 3.45, might be 4.10 or 4.15. So even for a 7.05 game, I'm going to get there at 3 o'clock or maybe a little bit before that. And I've always said this, that the most important preparation comes on the field. And... You know, I spend a lot of time with our coaches, um, and Vince is an incredibly hard worker, and I think we, we have a way of almost splitting up the preparation because he knows that my job is to focus on the manager. <laughs> but then whatever else you can find around the batting cage, and I try to make some mental notes from the previous day's game. If there are three or four things that might have happened in that game that might be interesting to talk about the next day, maybe a stolen base or an error or a decision the manager made or the third base coach or – was a certain hitter looking for a certain pitch in a situation. 
to go back and ask some of those people about that. So whatever tidbits you can find um, on the field before the game around the bat occasion or in the clubhouse, I think are really important. All that being said, everything starts with the foundation of calling the game itself. There's nothing more important than trying to be as accurate as you can possibly be in the game. Ernie Harwell said, you call the game, but that'd be boring if that's all you did for three hours. So you mix in a little bit of color. So there's that kind of fine line there. You, you know, I don't, I don't think you should try to force anything into the broadcast. Um, so the game always comes first. So I've said this that you, you can visualize it that you build the broadcast from the booth down to the field, or from the field. I mean, you build the broadcast from the field up to the booth, rather, rather from the booth down to the field. How has your prep process changed over the years with? the internet what was your prep process and your research process like before you could just hop on google and find everything about the starting pitcher well it's a great question when i started with the white Sox, this was 92 i don't know how much of the internet there was back then and if there was i was certainly not well versed at all i had no idea what i was doing i subscribed to the chicago sun times and the chicago tribune and they would arrive a couple days late uh, but, you know, a lot of the work revolved around getting the newspaper. And it's it's kind of a sad state of affairs that newspapers are becoming somewhat obsolete, or at least we're getting a lot of our news from the papers from their websites. I really miss actually sitting down with a newspaper at, at lunch, for instance, and you just don't see that a whole lot anymore. But um, I think a lot of it revolved around the newspaper itself, actually physically having it than looking things up on the internet right now. And I think one of the things, there's kind of a, there's almost a trap in a way that you can get so immersed in things that you don't know where to stop. Uh, there's so much information available, and there are a lot of fine lines in broadcasting in terms of statistics. The, um, the way things have developed, yeah, you know, it's, and they're, they're, you know I don't, I've never really fully understood how much of our audience understands a lot of, let's say, the newer stats that people use and the analytics and, and where do you draw the line on where that's relevant and where it's not on a broadcast. I think all of us in the business are still trying to figure that out. Oakland has had a lot of good teams in your time there, but they've never been able to get over that hump and make it to the World Series. How important is it for you to someday get a chance to call a World Series game? I wouldn't say it's important. I don't think it's, it would define my career one way or the other. It would be a thrill to do it, and it would be great for our fans to experience that. Uh, and I think it's the people that I think about, too, are the salespeople, the people that are working the streets that are selling advertising or selling tickets. And I think when you, you have a really good team, those are the people that benefit along with the fans. And it, it's been frustrating. Uh, the A's have had so many, during the times, that the years that I've done the games, we've had eight separate trips to the postseason and have only advanced to the championship series one time. Now, they've run into some really tough customers, and the A's have been criticized for not advancing. Well, they've faced people like Justin Verlander in his prime and Pedro Martinez in the final games of playoff series, especially in the best of five in the first rounds. As Billy Bean said, those could be, crapshoots and it's not as if the A's didn't have teams that were that had the capability of advancing I, I always thought the 2001 team Logan was the A's best team during the whole years all the years that I did the games and there was a 
uh, obviously the the that that whole series was set against the backdrop of 9/11 and the poignancy of being in New York for the first two games less than a month after 9/11, and then winning those two games. And Jeter spoiled the whole thing with a flip in the third game. So, and you can always look back and say, you know, if that hadn't happened, who knows? Maybe the A's would have gone all the way that year. But um, it would just be it would be a lot of fun. I can't, but I don't think that that I need it in any way as far as any validation for my career. I've had this discussion with a couple people, not on the podcast, but just uh, in passing, just talking about broadcasting. Some people take losses as like a personally difficult thing, where if you're the broadcaster for a team, even though you're not playing or contributing to the outcome at all, you're irritated and you're grumpy after a team's loss. I personally am not like that. I can get over it in about five minutes. How much does a loss sting to you? Not that much, honestly. I think that that anyone who does what what I do for a living, and next year will be my 22nd year with the A's, there's a certain investment that you have in the team and the team's success, and you can't fake that on the air. I think if you, I think fans can see right through that if if you're not authentic. That was one of the great things about Bill. I mean, Bill really cared deeply about the A's and their wins and losses. But I also have had moments of great exhilaration even after a loss. Um, so I don't take it that hard. I think the, the the times that it becomes tough, if you have a season like the A's had last year where, you know, they were well out of it. I mean, I don't think there was anybody was thinking about the A's contending. Even during the first half of the season, you go back to June, it was pretty apparent this was not going to be a real good club. And so there's a, a broader challenge there when your team isn't that good in knowing that you're going to really have to be resourceful to try to think of interesting things to talk about because you don't really have that energy in the ballpark. Um, I think that the toughest toughest games would be the ones where they're just the team just doesn't play well. If, if, the, you know, if they go out and lose and it's a great game, I, I still get a great thrill out of, out of broadcasting that game, whether the A's win the game or not. It's when it's a lousy game, I think that maybe you kind of feel a little more frustrated at the way the team played, because you know you have greater expectations than that. And I know the manager and the coaches in the front office feel the same way. I remember a game we were playing, the A's were playing in Boston, and uh, I was working with Bill, and there was this incredibly riveting long duel. I think Brian Daubach was batting for the Red Sox, and he won the game with a ball that was hit off the green monster. And Bill and I walked back to the hotel after the game, and Bill said to me, you know, I'm so high from calling that game, but I could never go to the manager tonight and tell him how I feel because I know that that was a devastating loss down in the clubhouse. So you're aware that those losses are tough on the fans, they're tough in the clubhouse, but still as a broadcaster, you live for those incredible moments where there's a lot of of energy and tension at the end of the game. What are some broadcast horror stories that you've had to go through over your long <laughs> career at a lot of different places, calling uh, high school football in Northern California to covering the A's? Just some just situations that was just a nightmare at the time, but maybe you can look back at and laugh at now. Good stuff. Good question. Um, I can think of two. One is still something that, that amuses my daughter to great lengths was when I was doing UNLV basketball on television, and we were playing a game against Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. 
at Mott Gym, which is a pretty small place on their campus up there. And I believe, I'm not sure, it might have been the first telecast, live telecast ever to originate from that gym. We're having a terrible time with the technical aspect of, of things, just trying to get the thing off the air before the tip-off. And we had planned to rehearse the open, the stand-up, with my partner, the great, the late Glenn Gondrasek, great UNLV player and NBA player, passed away, sadly. And we were going to record the open, and then we had all this stuff all hell broke loose where we were having all these technical issues. And they said, okay, Kim, we're going to do the open. I looked up at the clock, and the clock in the gym said something like two minutes to seven or three minutes to seven. So in my mind, I was thinking, we're still recording the open. Well, about halfway through, I didn't like something that I said. I turned to my partner and I said, you know, let's do this over again. I didn't like that. And now all of a sudden, the producer is screaming in my ear, and a lot of it is X-rated. Ken, we're live. And so I had to pick up in the middle and just kind of, I don't know what I, what I said, but we weren't recording the open. And that was a pretty awkward moment. And when I came home from that road trip, my daughter just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. She was about eight years old at the time. I said, you know what? If you were there, you wouldn't have thought it was that funny. The other thing was that I forgot to do the fifth inning one time when I was working for the White Sox in Chicago. And at that point, the White Sox radio network was a rudderless ship. And that was pretty embarrassing, too. Um, I was wandering the halls of Camden Yards. And at that, in those days, CBS did the game of the week. And they had what was called the hometown inning. And my partner, I was working with Ed Farmer, who still does the White Sox. I never did the fifth inning. But Ed, because Ed always did the fifth. But Ed had been asked by CBS to go do the fifth inning as part of the hometown inning, the top of the fifth. Well, the bottom of the fourth ends, and I'm blissfully walking around Camden Yards, visiting friends in the press box, whatever I was doing, because doing the fifth inning was something I never did. And I was blissfully just kind of in my own world. All of a sudden, the engineer comes racing down the hall of the press box going, Ken, you're on the air. Well, I think we've missed four or five pitches. And luckily, John Rooney, who was the voice of the White Sox, then was doing the game on CBS. He raced into our booth and actually picked up the play-by-play, leaving Ed by himself on CBS. I know I'm getting into a pretty long and convoluted, twisting story here, but those are the times when you see your career passing before your eyes. (laughs) That is good stuff. You mentioned something that I've always wondered, because I've never really had to deal with it at my level, but having people talking in your ear while you're broadcasting, how difficult is that to get used to? Well, I never, you know, Logan, it's a very, it's it's a really good question because I've done a lot of TV, um, but I much prefer doing radio, and I don't think it's necessarily because of the people that are in your ear. I've always worked with wonderful people, but TV is layered. So the, you're working on many different planes where when you're on radio, it's just you and the audience and you're calling the game. On TV, you have to be much more aware of the director and the producer and the things you're going to be doing next, and you want to... You're really, you're, you're really almost a caption for the pictures. So you're much, you're much more cognizant of what the people are seeing at home because you don't want to say things that are obvious that they're already looking at. And so you have to have that relationship with the producer. Um, I never found it to be that terribly difficult. I mean, I've been in some situations that were trying because of that. Uh, one time the A's played a six-hour game in New York at Yankee Stadium, 
and you know that those are those are long and, and tough games uh, to do sometimes. And it happened to be the night that Barry Bonds was going for his 600th career home run uh, for the Giants against the Pirates in San Francisco, and the A's and the Giants same, uh, shared the same cable station back then. And so there was a complicated kind of aspect of that because we were throwing it back and forth to the studio and back to San Francisco and back to New York. And so TV can be a little more complicated to do, I guess, is the, is a long-winded answer. A lot of people who are really good at radio eventually move on to TV, whether it's the uh, bigger audience, more money. I'm not really sure. What has kept you from doing that and kept you in radio uh, as you're obviously you dabble in some TV, but what has kept you mostly in radio? Well, I think a couple of things. Number one, there's no doubt it's where I want to be. It's, I'm just much more comfortable on radio. Uh, when I was a kid growing up and I envisioned myself doing games, I always could visualize myself on the radio. <clears throat> and it was never so much on, on TV. My comfort zone is much more on radio than, than television. And that doesn't mean that I don't have great respect for the people that do TV and the people that work behind the scenes. We have wonderful technicians that work um, on the A's telecast, for instance. And the other thing, I've been lucky enough for the A's to give me the choice. Uh, they've, been, they've been great about that in that um, there have been a couple times where they said, uh, Ken, you, you pick and you decide what you want to do, and if this is where you want to be with your career, then they were more than willing to um, try to acquiesce from that standpoint. One of the, another thing I've always wondered, when you reach a certain level, there's obviously more resources, more information at your fingertips than, let's say, if you were covering a local high school game where the coaches think you're going to give their information to the other coach. With that being said, obviously you're very prepared. You dig up a lot of stuff on your own. During your broadcast, do you have other people who are also feeding you information maybe that you don't have when you go into one of those deep uh, he leads the league, league in home runs with his left hand on Tuesday type stats. <laughs> well, and I have great respect for people like yourself because you're working at a, the you know small college games. And when I was even doing San Jose State games, I had to engineer the games. I didn't have an analyst, especially on this was for basketball. The the higher levels, the the higher you reach, the easier it becomes because of the resources you talked about. Um, we have an engineer for all of our games. I've worked with the same engineer who also do, does a lot of our uh, producing in the booth in Oakland, Mike Baird. We've been together for every year I've done the A, so there's a great comfort level there. In the studio, we have the greatest people that you can imagine that are um, uh, cutting up highlights and editing things, and uh, they're like a second eyes and ears for us, even though they're back in the studio, and they do just remarkable work on the production side of things, led by John Trinidad, who I think is like, he's like a guru to all the engineers and producers in Northern California. We have a, an intern at home who sits with us and who I've, who I spend, you know, both Vince and I will spend time with before the season and just telling him or her and whatever the case may be, that just become like the eyes and ears. If we say something and that interests you, maybe it might spark you to think of something. I might say something, look it up. You might, you might, you know, the, a lot of doing research is just these kind of tributaries go out in different directions where you might happen upon something that might be interesting. And so 
as I said, the, 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 when you reach a certain level, I think it, it becomes a lot easier. The crowds, that's one of the things that really motivated me about trying to get a job in the big league, is that I wanted to feel the roar of the crowd. I wanted to be in a situation where you had 30 or 40, 50,000 people. I wanted to be tested at that level. Uh, when you're doing a great game in the playoffs, those games almost broadcast themselves. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to, both you know, maybe in the major leagues, but maybe some other under-the-radar regional people that somebody in South Dakota or in New York or Atlanta might not know about? Well, everything starts for me with Vince Scully. Uh, he was the voice of my youth, the voice of summer, the biggest influence that I've had. Um, I even say, I've said this now, he's of course done his last game, but uh, my dad is still around. He'll be 98 in February, Logan, but when I listen to Vinny, it's almost like I feel like my father is talking to me because that's been a voice that's been so constant for all these years. And as I said earlier, the fact that he's just been so humble and, and gracious off the air uh, just makes him an even more special person. So for me, as far as influences, Scully, Dick Enberg, Chick Hearn, Bill King, Lon Simmons, they're the ones that are at the, at the top of the list for me and then in terms of the people that I enjoy listening to I think in the Bay Area we're very fortunate um, the Giants broadcasters are outstanding we have a great I think the standards are pretty high up there um, I don't want to leave anybody out but I think collectively it's a wonderful market um, and I'll say something that might be a little off the wall because I'm a huge fan of golf uh, and the, the best interview I've ever done the most enjoyable one, the most gratifying, I think the best one I've ever done, was with Johnny Miller when I was working for a quasi-national talk show network uh, back in the 90s. And I still look back on that, and just and it was just kind of in wonderment that we had, it was just such an incredible experience. So I think collectively the, <clears throat> the NBC golf team is phenomenal. I think they're the best team as far as broadcasting a sporting event there is. Um, there's a guy named Rich Lerner, who's, I think, the main guy at the Golf Channel. I don't think it's a lot of national attention. I think he's absolutely phenomenal. So people like that uh, would come to mind right off the, off the top of my head. Have you ever had a chance to broadcast golf? I never had. I, I would love to do it. I'll never have the chance. Um, you know, I was never good enough to play at that level. But I would love to do golf. It's probably the one thing that I really would love to do. It's never going to happen. But at least with my buddies when we go play, they can get a little taste of my my kind of fantasy golf play-by-play. <laughs> you were being a broadcaster on the West Coast for a long time. You talked a lot about Vin Scully here. Give us a story that shows us who Vin Scully really is when the mic's turned off. Well, I think one of the things, um, first of all, it's the way that he treats everyone as if that encounter is the most important thing to him at that time. And if you go to the Dodgers TV booth before a game, there's literally a line of people outside wanting to come in and talk to Vinny. And you know how difficult that is day after day after day. And it might be the only chance that you have if you're Scully to talk to that person. And I don't think he wants to let anybody down. Now, he has people around him, including Boyd, his longtime stage manager. There comes a point where they close the door, and Vinny has to focus on his preparation. But even if it's for a minute or 30 seconds or two minutes, I just think he tries to make those encounters special. 
I remember when my dad and my stepmom were at Dodger Stadium for a game involving the A's several years ago. They came up to the press box, and I introduced them to Vinny. And even for that 30 seconds, Vinny made them feel like they were special to be up there. And that's the type of person that he is. Now, in ter- as far as something that would illustrate his dedication, um, we were at, in L.A. for a game a few years back. Kurt Young was the A's pitching coach. He still is. Of course, the A's play the Dodgers in the 88 World Series and the Gibson home run and all that. Before the game, Vinny came almost literally running down to our booth, and he wanted to know when Kurt Young had pitched for the A's, if we could look up when Kurt Young had pitched for the A's in the 88 World Series against the Dodgers. And I kind of chided Vinny a little bit. I said, you know, Vinny, you're really hustling here, man. And he turned to me. He got almost kind of stern. He said, this is what we do as broadcasters. I would feel terrible if Kurt Young went to the mound to visit one of the A's young pitchers, and I didn't know that the last time that he was on the mound was when he pitched in the World Series against the Dodgers and the date and the details of when he did that during the series of 88. That speaks a lot to Vince Scully and his dedication. Well, that's about all I got for you today. Once again, I really appreciate your time. We're talking with Ken Korak. He is the radio voice of the Oakland A's. And, Ken, I know you've wrote a book, Holy Toledo Lessons from Bill King, Renaissance Man of the Mic. And I have a a loyal audience of tens of loyal sportscasters. And I just thought I'd give you an opportunity to plug your book and tell people where they can buy it. Well, I think it's still available on Amazon. In fact, I know that it is. And um, it's been a great journey with the book. And, and one of the things was that I set out to do the book not only through my eyes and through the experiences I had with Bill as a, as a kid growing up listening to him and then the 10 years we worked together, but it's almost, in a, in a way, a Bay Area sports history because Bill's history is so, was so intertwined with the history of Bay Area sports having broadcast the A's and the Raiders and the Warriors. And so I had the chance to interview um, some of the great figures in Bay Area sports, beginning with John Madden, people like that. And, um, and, and it was a labor of love to do. I know it's a cliche to say that, but I just love doing it. And uh, I was really inspired by the people I interviewed to write the book because I think their passion for talking about Bill, and it says mirrored the passion that Bill had for his own life. So thanks for mentioning it, Logan. It is available on Amazon, and uh, you got the title exactly right. It's... Uh, Holy Toledo, lessons from Bill King, Renaissance Man of the Mic. John Miller was gracious, gracious enough, by the way, to uh, to author the foreword to the book. And you know, John, one of the really, truly great broadcasters and a great friend, and I'm really indebted to John for taking the time to write the foreword. What was the hardest thing about writing a book? Uh, I think that I was intimidated. The hardest thing was trying to capture Bill. I really felt this great responsibility because Bill's fans were so invested in him you know, in, in the idealistic, I guess, a romantic sense of what we do, you become a member of the family. And for Bill, having worked in the Bay Area from 1958 to 2005, so many people, thousands of people felt like they knew him and were invested in him. And how do you capture a man who's, especially whose interests ran the full spectrum? I mean, Bill was the most multidimensional and layered human being, I think, maybe who ever lived. So I was real intimidated trying to capture him, thinking that there was no way that I could do the legacy of Bill Justice. And eventually I just came around. I had great help, great help from our producer, I mean the, uh, the publisher of the book and the editors who worked on it. But all, all you can do is do your best and just try to capture it the best that you can. And so that was the goal that I had. 
How would somebody get a hold of you to ask you a question if uh, they wanted to do so? Well, they could send me an email at uh, kcorak at athletics.com. That's probably the easiest way to do it. Um, I'm also on Facebook if they'd like to get a hold of me that way, but um, kcorak at athletics.com through email or also could also check me out on Facebook. We should mention that Korak is spelled (laughs) K-O-R-A-C-H. That is correct. Yeah, right. Would have been a lot easier to change that, by the way, but we never did. Was there ever a thought of coming with a stage name or a radio name, so to speak? Never was, no. Never was. All right. Well, that's... I got more questions that I could probably come up with, but I feel like you've already given me an hour and almost 15 minutes, so I'm going to send you on your way to go uh, go about your life. But, again, thank you for joining us, Ken Korak, here on the Say the Damn Score podcast. It was really a lot of fun. Boy, the questions were fantastic, too, so you did a great job. Thanks for having me. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thank you for joining in. I'm Logan Anderson. Make sure to reach out to Ken Korak. Shoot him an email or Facebook message and just let him know that you enjoyed your time listening to his conversation. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. You can subscribe for email updates at saythedamnscore.com. Just look at the upper right side of the page and enter in your email address after clicking on the subscribe button. It's that easy. You can also subscribe on iTunes, now on Google Play Music, on Stitcher, or you can follow me on Twitter where I post updates at Radio underscore Logan or on Facebook.com slash Say the Damn Score. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Next time you're on the air, Say the Damn Score just a little bit more.